You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, uh, MLB.com National Editor. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Are you great? I'm excited. It's spring training. I get to go to Arizona in like three hours. This is a great week. I'm very happy about I'm this. I'm jealous. I can't wait. Um, listen, I'm really excited this week because we have on the phone with us a man who's done a little bit of everything in a career that spent uh, more than 30 years. Spent 20 years with the White Sox in various roles, uh, was the GM of the Dodgers, is now the director of Pacific Rim Operations for the Blue Jays, has written for Baseball Prospectus, is on the board of directors of uh, Rocky Mountains chapter of Sabre, and was a player agent. Dan Evans is on the phone. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sorry to kick up all of your time with all the things I've done. I apologize, guys. <laughs> uh, you know what? It's okay. An impressive resume is never going to be a problem for us. Uh, Dan, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about the, the way that data and metrics uh, have changed over your many years in the game. And, you know, going back to when you first started out with the White Sox in the 80s, and you worked with some really impressive names like Tony La Russa and uh, Dave Dombrowski, Dave Duncan, Roland Heeman. And I feel like that group doesn't necessarily get enough credit for how maybe ahead of the curve they were with data. I'm honest, I'm looking at a picture of you right now uh, with an Apple II in the press box in Comiskey. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you're maybe 23 years old. There's three there's, there's three, distri- three floppy drives yeah, next to it. it it's it's oh amazing. And uh, you lugged this all around the country as far as I know. So, uh, you know, I'd, like I said, it's, it's really interesting what that group did. Did you know at the time that you were kind of doing something a little outside the box? Yeah, I did. And I, I think a lot of the credit has to go to Jerry Reinsdorf, the recently departed um, Eddie Einhorn and Jack Gould. They were cutting edge when cutting edge was um, was really kind of against the grain and, and really looked at somewhat inquisitively and negatively across the sport. I, I was lucky to work with, with not only people who had the foresight to, to realize that data gathering was going to be a much more efficient and solid way of gathering information. But also, um, you know, to me, I was working with people who were great mentors. And to this day, I'm thankful for them because I certainly wouldn't have had the fun career that I've had without their support, their guidance, and their just unlimited um, boundaries in the game. It was just, it was an amazing time to work for the White Sox. So as I'm looking at this picture of you with this uh, this old computer, I'm curious what kind of what kind of data would that have spit out? You know, we talk now about Statcast and spin rate and pitch effects. You know, what what was the kind of the cutting edge out of that system at the time? Well, what we did is we gathered pitch type, location, and hit wear for everything. Uh, this was the BATS 1000 program, and you know this program originated around 81 or 82. I was actually an intern with the White Sox, and they asked me if I would be interested in doing that. And I was just thinking, you know, are you kidding me to be in a part of a major league franchise? Why, why wouldn't I add interns for the White Sox for an extended period? And it was just a tremendous opportunity. So what we did is we literally plotted everything during the game. And, you know, John Dewan's program today um, really mirrors in the bass program that most clubs use today really mirrors what we were doing 35 years ago. It was it was amazing, and it, it's really funny, guys, because to this day, you know, I keep a pitch chart, which most scouts don't, but I keep it because that's the way I watched the game for my first six or seven years in the game, and I just don't know any other way to watch it. I, it 
it you know locks me in pitch by pitch. I don't veer off or get bored as a result. But we literally kept data on everything. We kept um, we kept velocities and we plugged everything in. So we had a database that was extraordinary for its time. You know the difference between us and some of the other clubs. We kept it really quiet. So the advantage that we had, quite honestly, was something that you know very few people, except those of us internal with the White Sox, really knew what we had. And luckily, we had a phenomenal coaching staff, um, led by a Hall of Fame manager and Tony Larusa, who was just an amazing mentor for me. But to have Dave Duncan, who I think is the best pitching coach in the last 25, 30 years in the game, Jim Leland, Eddie Brinkman. Dave Nelson, I mean, we had Charlie Lau. We had an extraordinary group of people who, you know, were just not only inquisitive, but also were to the point in their careers that they were comfortable enough that, you know, they would explore things and not be afraid of answers, which I thought was an extraordinary thing to be a part of. Is it weird for you now that almost in the the, the modern uh, narrative is that Tony La Russa is kind of old school and anti-analytics, and then yet he broke into the game as sort of the first wave of analytic managers. There's a, there's a real disconnect there, no? Yeah, well, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I think there's a misnomer about Tony in there. Tony, for me, um, taught me something about baseball that's really relevant today. You know, the, the CSI series is such a huge component of TV, and it has such a following today. And I really view my role as a scout, my role as a baseball operations guy, to be a CSI-oriented person. Um, you know, it's, it's the most difficult, most subjective game to scout. It's an, it's an almost impossible game to predict. You know, the best teams in baseball lose 60 games a year. And there's so much, not only subjectivity, but variables within the sport that the more data you get and the more information you have, I think it gives you a better opportunity to make the right decision, which after all is, you know, for a manager, a coach, a front office person, a scout, that's our job is to try to minimize the risk as much as we can and get it right. And I think Tony being a lawyer, Tony being early in his career, wanted to make a mark in the game and wasn't afraid to explore things. Duncan wasn't afraid to explore things. We weren't driven or made decisions solely by analytics, solely by scouting, solely by gut feel. But the composition and the combination of those three areas made it a really fun place to work. You know, it's always interesting when you see the data uh, gets used on the field. And so I think a, a famous story from earlier in your career is that you noted that the White Sox were hitting balls that would die in the warning track. And so you got them to actually, I guess it's the equivalent of moving the field, the outfield fence is in, but because they couldn't move those in, home plate moved out. So the effect was to shorten the field by 10 or 15 feet. That was basically your first season on the job, right? I mean, that must have been kind of an incredible experience to be 22 or 23 and literally changing the playing field. Yeah, it was amazing, to be honest with you. I, uh, and it all started, I was shagging fly balls one day during early hitting in Kansas City late in the 80, or 82 season. I had just graduated from college, and um, I was shagging fly balls, and Harold Baines and I were great friends. And uh, we were same age, and Baines said to me one day, you know, Danny, we're losing a lot of balls to the track at our ballpark. And he wasn't complaining. We were just talking. And um, I started to think about it, and I said, you know, Harold, you're right. It just seems like we really are. It seems like we've, we've got more. And you guys know it. It's like when you're with a team the entire season, you, you know nuances about a ballpark and about a club. 
that nobody else knows because you're living it. You're breathing it for 183 days. And I went back at the end of the year and I took Harold's comments and Tom Pachork's comments. And um, I think Steve Kemp was one of the players who mentioned Jimmy Carlton Cisco also. And I played with the data a little bit and I found that it was an extraordinary difference. But guys, here's where, you know, I really give the White Sox a lot of credit. Not only forward thinking, but willing to listen to a 22-year-old guy pitching in something that was, you know, contrary to everything you would think, a 75-year-old ballpark, you know, and you're, you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, how can we make the most out of our team? And I got together with Jack Gould, the senior vice president with, with the club, a phenomenal life mentor of mine, pitched him with it, and he said, are you really sure you're right? Which I can, I can just I can vision him saying that to me today because I'm just thinking, God, if I'm wrong, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> but I have double and triple checked the data, and my father and mother were actually extraordinarily helpful because they kind of helped me mold the, uh, the pitch. And we went to Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn, and, you know, we came up with this idea that we would move, the, move home plate up eight feet, change the angles of the ballpark, change the trajectory of baseballs, and, you know, candidly, it just, it just exploded our team offense. We, we set a team record for home runs, team record for most runs scored in the season. We had an extraordinary year, won the division by 20 games, and put about 15 balls on the roof. And if you came, you know, with about a six or 700,000, you know, boost in attendance, it was a real extraordinary year. And I'll be candid with you guys, was really astonishing to me, but also incredibly stimulating that I realized, okay, I can impact the franchise that I grew up watching just by working and paying attention. And I had such incredibly, uh, you know, I just think not, not just great mentors, but people who weren't afraid to think outside the box. And, you know, I, I look back and I'm thankful for each of them because without them, you know, we wouldn't have done some of the things we did. That's an, that's an incredible story. I love that. <laughs> was 83, was, was that the Ron Kittle Rookie of the Year? <laughs> Yeah, it was. So he, Ron, was. Ron Kittle owes you his rookie. Yeah, he benefited award, from that. <laughs> yeah, he had 35 bombs this year that year. You know, it was really funny because we won a couple of games um, with home runs that got in the first row, and you know, guys are giving you a really hard time the next day. And I, I became great friends with so many guys since I was traveling with them. But the funniest part of the story was my late grandmother, who grew up a White Sox fan, uh, living in Chicago, and she went to a game in May. And she, she came back with me after the ball game, and she said, you, you've changed my ballpark. She said, I can't believe our balls are flying out of the park now. And I just said, no, I didn't change it, Graham. I, I, I helped change it. And she said, no. She said, this place, I, I'll, I'll never forget what she said. She said, this place is the Grand Canyon. And now all of a sudden it's not anymore. And I, I chuckled, and I just thought, wow, I, I think she's okay with this. I'm not sure, but let's keep moving along. <laughs> I love everything about that. Uh, I think we have to jump way into the future now to, to, I guess, the present. And you're currently working for the Blue Jays as the director of Pacific Rim Operations. And, you know, we talk a lot here about kind of the influx of, of talent from around the world, you know, the globalization of baseball. Uh, and one thing that always interests me is how you look at foreign stats and try to translate them to America. To give you one example that I'm sure you know about, uh, in Korea, the offensive explosion. There's an 80% increase in home runs from tw 2012 to 2014. So, you know, as, in your job now, you're, you're obviously looking at this. How do you kind of approach that when you're, when you're scouting guys, maybe recommending these guys? Well, I, first of all, I'm with a great place. This, is, uh, this has been an extraordinary run for me. 
working with just incredibly talented people in a really fun place. And about 70% of my job is scouting the big leagues and scouting the minor leagues here in the States and in, you know, obviously some, some games, um, you know, in other countries. But about 70% of my job is watching American baseball. And the other 30% is overseeing our Pacific Rim operations. And, you know, things like you're talking about, I think one of the reasons why I'm able to, you know, adeptly move back and forth between both is that I'm, I'm so immersed in the American game and I'm so immersed here in MLB and the way we do things that it's a little easier for me to translate it into how some of these Pacific Rim players can fit into the major league side. I think I would be struggling if I were only to watch those players play because, you know, the best of those players, I would probably have an elite opinion of them. But I think the most extraordinary thing about the, the Asian game in particular is its growth, its extraordinary level. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, have this image of, uh, of Japanese or Korean baseball, NPB baseball or KBO, and think it's far inferior, and they're wrong. It's not close. I mean, it's, it has moved so far uh, forward since Ichiro, Nomo, um, some of the great uh, Japanese players have moved in. And now what I see in Korea is the influx of Korean players coming to the big leagues is going to exponentially grow the game. You know, Korea is a great example. You guys mentioned, you know, the stats. There's different baseballs until last year. There were different baseballs used by different teams. Um, you know, there was there was some talk about potentially the ball might have been juiced, and there was some questions in the Japanese game a few years ago and some things that went on that caused the commissioner of the NPB to resign later on. But all those variables are what makes scouting overseas incredibly exciting for me because, you know, it's everything's not handed to you like it is here. Um, you know, I know the guys here from high school and college days had a chance to do a ton of amateur scouting. So when I go to um, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, China, you know, I don't have that same background. So it's the purest form of free agent scouting, which I just find to be not only stimulating, but invigorating and exciting. So it's, it's really a, a wonderful part of my job. Is there um, a country that you really look at as being kind of the next up-and-coming baseball country? Because as you said, you know, Japanese players have been here for many years, and we're starting to get more Korean hitters. Uh, is there another country that really stands out to you? Is that's kind of the next place where we're going to find talent? I think Taiwan and China, and I think it's happening because of the great WBC. I think what you're seeing is, you know, Little League for 20 or 30 years, you've seen a lot of uh, Korean, Japanese, um, Taiwanese players you know, really perform at a high level at age 11 or 12. I think the WBC has, has impacted baseball over the world. Um, it's been so much fun to be a part of it. You know, I, I know it hasn't been great to see the American players um, not capture the, the WBC or the gold medal, but it's great for our game that the level of play is, is so high in so many places now because it gives us a better talent flow, gives us more players to pick from, and I'll be honest with you, you know, 20 years ago, watching a game in Japan, Korea, Taiwan would have been very different than today. So I think what you're going to see is I think you're going to see China. I think you're going to see Taiwan continue to move forward. Um, Japanese players, you know, have, have really moved forward. It's an extraordinary game over there. And I, I really believe the Pacific Rim is, um, is so 
close to the major league level now that it would surprise a lot of people if they were to watch a game. Now, Dan, this being the StatCast podcast, I'm curious if any of the t- kind of tracking technology we're seeing over here um, is making its way into Japan or Korea, because I have to imagine that might be one way where you could say a player passes the sniff test, like, well, this guy, he's got an exit velocity of 110 miles an hour. That's that's big league. Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. The, the advent of technology, and, and I'm very, you know, very much technologically savvy, um, it really lets me do my job even better. I literally watch a game every night or two or three live from Japan or Korea or Taiwan um, on my iPad or my Chromebook. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an extraordinary amount of information out there. There's Twitter followers. There's, you know, people that have, have really generated a ton of information. There's a bunch of video available. And, and I'm thankful for that because it allows me to do my job really well in the States when I'm scouting for the Blue Jays. And, you know, I can come back to my hotel like last night. I watched a couple of exhibition games that were played overseas. And, you know, I got up at a ridiculous hour of the morning. But, you know, some of the election returns weren't done. So it was, like, kind of fun. You know, I was being educated and watching games at the same time. But to be honest with you guys, I think 20 years ago, it would have been a far more difficult task because I don't know how I would have kept up on all the players over there on a daily basis. Now when I'm, you know, I'm at a, a spring training game tonight or today, and, you know, sometime tonight I can watch a game with a series of players in Japan or Korea, and I really know who they are. I know their backgrounds. I've got video information of them, and I'm, I'm really thankful for, for what's been added to the world in the last, I would say, five years or so, it just allows me to do my job better. Dan, final question, and then we'll let you go. Uh, I read something in an interview you did recently, and I have to ask if it's true, because if it's true, it's it's something that would have changed the course of baseball. Uh, you had mentioned that when you were running the Dodgers, you had the opportunity to acquire David Ortiz, uh, and it didn't happen. And I asked this question because I lived in Boston in 2003 when the Red Sox got him, and obviously the impact he made on basically every Red Sox team for the last 15 years has been monumental. Uh, is that true? Is that a minor deal that didn't get made that would have really changed everything we know about the Red Sox and, and some other teams? Oh, yeah, it's true. I was I had just joined the Dodgers and had seen Ortiz play the previous winter in winter ball. I'd seen him play in the minor leagues and uh, had literally just come on the scene and Cherry Ryan had talked to me about the possibility of acquiring David. And uh, candidly, we already had a first baseman in place. I had some payroll restrictions in place. We didn't have the designated hitter rule. And, uh, frankly, the scouting reports weren't very good, and it was one of the reasons why I made some wholesale changes to the way we were doing business, kind of the process of what we were doing in Los Angeles. And it actually allowed us to do the job better from that point forward. But, yeah, it did happen. And, you know, if I was operating in a vacuum, I would have made the deal. But it was literally the first couple weeks on the job. And what I didn't want to do first coming in, is come in and make a move that was contrary to everything we had. And the fact that I didn't really have a place to put them, um, given the circumstances the Dodgers were in, it was something, you know, hey, I wanted to do it, couldn't do it, but it actually made us a better organization as a result. I had to know if it was true, and now I do. Yeah, we have a, I'm, I'm affiliated with a group called Sports Management Worldwide, where we try to help aspiring baseball professionals get their opportunity and get their start in baseball. And I do it really because of the great things that my mentors did for me, as we talked about earlier. It's, uh, 
it's really close to my heart, and it's we've really been able to help a number of people get their break into baseball, and it's been so rewarding to me. Just you know, from a from a strategic standpoint, from a mentoring standpoint, um, I just love seeing people across the game that we've helped. We have a we have a number of courses through sports management worldwide. I mentor the class. I just lead some guidance and I give them some background and some ideas and some strategy on how to get into the sport. So it's sports management worldwide at SMWW. We do eight week online four college credit courses where we teach the, um, the, you know, the understanding of baseball. It's called baseball for general managers and scouting. We also have a baseball analytics course taught by Ari Kaplan that is really insightful, one of the great you know, analytics guys in the game, and it just gives people a better foundation to go out and get that first job in baseball. And I've, I've been really thankful. Uh, the clubs have been really supportive and really have given great opportunities to people. So glad to be a part of it and really proud of some of the things we've accomplished so far. Well, it's always good when somebody uh, who has the resume, as I mentioned for quite a while at the beginning of the show, uh, gives back to the kids like that. And I think it's true. They've place graduates of many teams and even with TrackMan, who is a, a big part of the technology behind StackCast. So, Dan Evans, right. that was great. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. How interesting was Dan Evans? Huh? That story about, about home plate and Comiskey? I and listen. his grandmother? And his grandmother. <laughs> That's the best part, is his grandmother got mad at him for putting data onto the actual field, which I thought was fantastic. And winning them a division. And winning them a division. And look at you pulling Ron Kittle out of nowhere. I can promise everybody Matt does not have a computer in front of him. We got to talk about Ron Kittle, so it's been a good I was, I threw that out there. I was like, I think that's the right year. <laughs> and you were right. Yeah. So good guess, because you kind of put yourself out there. Um, I wrote that it was interesting what Dan said about scouting in Korea and Asia, right? Because it, it's kind of hard when you look at the, the history of these guys. We haven't had a lot of Korean hitters that have come over up until the last year or two. Yeah, I mean, the, the point he made um, about how since he watches mostly, scouts mostly in the, in the U.S., and then, you know, 30% of his job is Korea, but that gives him a really good baseline for the American talent level is an interesting one. And I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who's a scout. A few years ago, I just called him to catch up. Um, you know, he's an amateur scout, probably goes to games 200 nights a year. I don't know, that's probably a lot. <laughs> and I called him, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm on, the way, I'm on my way to uh, the Braves game. And I was like, you're going to a baseball game on your night off? He was like, no, it's, it's really important for me to go to major league games so I remember what it's supposed to look like. Um, and that really, that stuck with me. And so when Dan was talking about how important it is that he sees so much baseball in the U.S. that he has to compare it to, that, that anecdote came to mind. Yeah, he might watch more baseball than anybody else alive, right? If he's watching all the major league teams and then also all, a lot of the Asian teams, that's, I don't know, 60 teams he's following on a, on a regular basis, which I think is incredible. I mean, that's a lot of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And the Korea stuff, I mean, we're seeing it again this offseason uh, with so much intrigue around Park. Um, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sort of how the, the Korean influx might be changing the game. Yeah, I, I think if you look back last year with, uh, with Gong for Pittsburgh, and I think what people forget about him is he was the fir- not the first Korean hitter to be successful, but the first one who had really come through the professional baseball organization there. Because guys like Chu had kind of come up uh, through the minor leagues and hadn't really played professionally there. And so now we're seeing Gong was unbelievably successful last year. He was a 30% above uh, league average hitter before he got hurt. Uh, and for you know whatever they signed him for, twelve million dollars or I don't even remember, but it was an amazing deal. So now we have Park in Minnesota, uh, we have Kim in Baltimore, and then Lee on a minor league contract in Seattle. And uh, I think that you've kind of seen guys like Gong sort of blaze the trail there, right? You know, these guys haven't always had opportunities before, and now they're sort of proving it's not just the pitchers who can succeed here; it's the hitters. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to put too much stock into spring training stats, but it is nice to see Park already has 
two home runs. And I remember yeah. thinking back when he signed in the context of what, you know, he got four years for $12 million total. Yeah, $3 million plus, a year. It's nothing. Plus a, plus a $12.8 million posting fee, which is something. Yeah. But a $25 million investment in total for a player who was like, he was putting up literally video game numbers right. in Korea. And then you look at what, um, you know, maybe uh, Yasmani Tomas got, um, and maybe some other Cuban players. And this isn't to, to, to put down the Cuban game. It's just sort of remarkable that how much we buy into the Cuban talent level, but there's still, even this past offseason after Kong's success, Kong success, there was so much yeah. skepticism about Park. I mean, all, all four of these guys that we mentioned combined didn't come close to getting what Hector Oliveira got. And Hector Oliveira is, is older, and he has maybe an elbow issue, and we don't know if he can play the infield or not. And I think you're right. Like, the, the salary structure is really skewed to the point where you almost wonder that if it's another year of these the Korean guys being successful, maybe that will kind of help push the more money towards them going forward. Yeah, and the, the, the Twins being an example of a team that got Park, the Twins, and have always been at the forefront of international. They were one of the first teams to go into Australia. They were one of the first teams to go into Europe. Max Kepler was the big bonus. Love Max Kepler. Germany was about, he debuted last year and could be an impact player yeah. this year. So when they went out and uh, and got Park, you know, it didn't surprise, when, when they were the team, I was like, okay, this. It, it was weird though. It didn't surprise me because they are invested in that market, but it just surprised me on their roster, right? Because you already have Joe Maurer, who's a first baseman DH. You have Sano, who probably should be a first base DH. You have Kenny Vargas, who's a first baseman DH. Uh, but the fact that it's not a, an obvious fit and they still went after him, I think that kind of like says a lot about what they really think about him. And the, in the, that, that twin strategy, so to speak, brings me back to something that Dan Evans was talking about, where he was talking about when they were with the White Sox and they were really this analytical club and they didn't really talk about it. Right. Uh, they and they didn't really draw attention to themselves. And I think the Twins are an example of a team in the sense, like, for example, with their international program, they've never been self-promotional about it. But if you're paying close attention, you see, okay, this is a team that's willing to uh, go out and, you know, try some, scout some, some different areas of the world. And tell me if you disagree, but I think that maybe that's some of where some of the resentment, for example, the A's comes from, where I think in the, within the industry, whether it's jealousy or what, they think that these were sort of self-promotional as, hey, we're the stats. Well, here. there's a lot of people who think Billy Bean actually wrote the book Moneyball. So there's that. But you're probably right. I think it does go back to self-promotion, and, and some, some teams aren't really into that. And I think Dan said that about the White Sox. And I think today that group probably does not get enough credit for what they did, right? And they are really progressive ahead of the game as far as, as stats and data. And uh, you don't really think of them in the same way as you think of the, the quote-unquote Moneyball A's. Yeah. And that's probably unfair. Because uh, they, they really did a lot. And as you had brought up, Tony La now seen as kind of like the dinosaur of the stats world, you know, probably not fair either because he really, you know, blazed a lot of traffic, bullpen usage and everything. Um, so I thought that was really great. Dan Evans was a wonderful guest. And um, it was a good podcast. Yes. So I'm going to wrap it up now and go to the airport and go to Arizona and uh, interview some players. Thank you for listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We will be back with you next week, back here in New York City. I'm Mike Petriello. It's my co-host Matt Myers. Thanks to Dan Evans. Catch you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.